I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 810. And while you turn to Luke chapter 6, I have a question for you. Um, up on the screen, what kind of tree is this? A green one. <laughs> Stephanie, that hand was pretty quick. <laughs> well, um, let me give you a hint. This, uh, this next picture. We'll go. You see, we tend to tell trees right here, we're about to be in berry season. I love berry season. Um, we tell trees by their fruit, do we not? And so in the passage of Scripture this morning, that's exactly what Jesus is about to be showing to us. So this is Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 43. Would you read with me? Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against it, against that house, and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Would you say a word of prayer one more time? Lord, as we approach your word, as we often pray here, we ask that you guide us in truth, that you guard us from error to see what it is that your spirit is trying to make plain to us here this morning. Amen. So last week, as you may remember, you'll walk through the question or, or, or the title of the sermon, Thou shalt not ever judge. And here Jesus follows up with that, with a word about fruit, saying, well, how on earth could you judge? Well, you know them by their fruit. You'll know it's an orange tree if it's producing oranges. Right? You can't get cabbage off a fig tree, right? You can't get grapes off of a bramble bush, right? And Jesus makes the connection from there, and he says, out of the abundance, he's starting to say, humans, you're kind of like trees, but what's the core, what's the root of the human tree, if you will? He, t he tells us there in verse 45, it says, the heart, right? Out of the goodness of the heart, good will be produced, he says the heart is the core of the tree. It's the root of the tree, which begs the question, why the heart? What's so important about the heart? Well, we often read in Scripture, do we not, that the heart is the seat of the emotion. It's the core of the spiritual, 
It's also the core of the physical. So Jesus is saying the core of the person, the heart, is what produces the fruit. And so the core from the root, from the heart, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. Pretty straightforward, right? And he goes on to say, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Translation, you really want to know what someone thinks, just spend enough time with them, and you'll pick up on a comment here or there. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth is going to speak at one point or another. Now, Jesus isn't making some sort of universal claim that people can't be deceitful. He's not making a universal claim that the mouth always, ever, only says exactly what the heart's saying. But if you spend enough time with someone, you're going to get a pretty good idea of what their heart's like, aren't you? An example, picture yourself there on a Sunday afternoon uh, watching your favorite football team or on a weekday watching NHL or a baseball game. And in the last minute, your team makes the game-winning field goal or shot. What are you going to do? Out of the abundance of your heart, you're going to jump off the couch. Or if you flip it around, um, maybe this is is bad for some, um, if the ref makes a terrible call with two minutes left. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Sometimes this can get us caught up in work with um, with a co-worker. Sometimes at home when a family maker member makes some sort of blockheaded decision. What on earth were you thinking? And it's sometimes in those moments, out of the abundance of the heart, sometimes, do I just need to pause? Like, what on earth did I just say? Did what I just say, is that really a reflection of my heart? Because sometimes in those moments, do I just need to pause, stop, and repent? Did I really just say that? And is that really a reflection of my heart? Because if so... In a lot of those moments, sometimes I need to pause, right? And repent. So be on the lookout for those moments this week. Um, Jesus goes on to say in in Matthew chapter 7, he he continues, if you will. Jesus says this. By the way, there's going to be a number of passages this morning. So just feel free to jot them down. Don't feel like you have to turn to all of them. But Matthew 7, listen to what Jesus says in verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What comes from the heart is what defiles us. Again, sometimes in those moments, whenever I say something like, was that from within? Is that something I need to repent of right now? For out of the abundance of the heart, right, the mouth does speak. The reformer John Calvin um, said it this way. He said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Just always making more and more idols. You see, the heart 
is the source of goodness. It can be. That's what Jesus told us. It can be the source of goodness, but the human heart's a wicked, wicked place, is it not? And thus, a man's words are determined by what his heart is full of. Which begs the question, how on earth do I stuff my heart with good stuff? If the abundance of my heart are what my words are going to be, how do I stuff it? Full of good stuff. Well, the Bible also has something to say about that in Jeremiah. Listen to these words in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now remember this passage and remember that question. How do I stuff my heart with good stuff? Because we're going to circle back there right at the end. So keep that question in mind for whenever we circle back and these, these words from Jeremiah. And that leads us to a well-known passage that many of us have grown up with. Build your house on the rock. Earlier this week, my three-year-old nephew was apparently singing the song, which I had long forgotten. The wise man built his house the rains came down and the floods. <laughs> I totally had forgotten about that song until just this week, reminded uh, by my little nephew. If we were to ask the average American Christian what the purpose of this passage is, fill in the blank. Build your house on the... So that when the storms of life come, you will stand firm or strong. What if that's not what Jesus is really teaching here in this passage, primarily? You see, Luke, as, as he's organizing his information in a thematic way, he puts this right after he's talking about the goodness and the evilness of the heart. He puts this after talking about the fruit of the heart. So what's he trying to communicate to us? What's Jesus' primary point here? Well, in verse 46, who's Jesus talking to? Take a look. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to people who pay lip service but don't follow it up with deeds. He's talking to people who walk the walk, but don't... I said that backwards. That could have been bad. He's talking to people who talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. Is someone who talks the talk or someone who claims to have faith but doesn't have faith really a Christian? Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to the people who are talking it, who can talk a good game, but aren't really possessors of faith. And how does he describe this person? He describes him as the one who builds the house on the sand. And what is the ultimate, what happens to the person who builds their house on the sand? What happens to the house? Not only falls, Jesus' words, yeah, it, it falls, but Jesus' specific words are great ruin. He doesn't say the house is wiped out. He chooses to use the words 
and great was the ruin of that house. This is a really big deal. And this can be a, a chilling, it can be a terrifying passage of Scripture. I just kind of imagine Jesus just a few moments right before here, kind of just being calm and, and collected as I often imagine, although he wasn't always cool, calm, and collected, saying, do you see figs on thorn bushes? Like, no, of course not, Jesus. Well, do you see grapes growing on brambles? Oh, Jesus, are, are you crazy? Of course you don't see it. They don't go together. I said, well, then, why do you pretend to have fruit for something that you aren't? And, just, and that's who Jesus is talking to here. Why Lord, and not do what I tell you? You see, their assumption, the assumption of so many people there was different than God's reality. Their assumption was, we are yours. God's reality is, you really are not mine. That's a dangerous place to be. They are presuming to call themselves something that they really aren't. Just because you'll want something in life, just because you want to do something or be something, doesn't make you that thing, right? I would love to be good at drawing. But the moment I start drawing stick figures, you're going to look at me and say, you're no artist. Me willing to be an artist is not going to make me an artist. Any one of us, unless you can somehow swim in the uh, stream out here, any one of us can say, I'm a world-class swimmer this morning because half the pools in the county are closed for a few more weeks. But until you get in that pool and prove otherwise, we may believe you. But that doesn't make you a world-class swimmer, does it? We see this all over the world today, don't we? Where we see folks claiming an identity, where we see folks claiming talents or gifts that just doesn't match up with reality. And that's what's going on here. See, and what Jesus is saying is just because you say that you are mine doesn't mean you really are mine. Which leads us to the builders. There are three contrasting points, if you will, um, for these builders. The first is that the foolish builder, he seems sincere, doesn't he? The foolish builder appears to be sincere. And how do we know this? Because he says, Lord, Lord. Jesus quotes him saying, you say, Lord, Lord. Now, if you're a 21st century English, in the English language, the way you emphasize something is you put exclamation points, right? Or you underline, or you raise your voice. But if you're a Hebrew, what you do is you repeat it to emphasize it. And so Jesus, the, the folks are saying, not only do we call you Lord, but we are saying, you are Lord. They're serious about this. They appear sincere. And even though they're calling him Lord, what's the result of all their labors of their lives? What's the result of their lives according to Jesus? Great ruin. 
which leads us to a parallel text in Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, catch this church, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, there's a difference, church, between professing faith in Jesus and possessing faith in Jesus. The builder of the sand professes faith in Jesus, doesn't he? The builder on the rock truly possesses faith in Christ Jesus. Which leads us to look inward as we start to think about what do I do with this today? How do I apply this? Do I care? Here's the question for us. Do I care more about professing Jesus? About professing faith in Christ? Or about possessing it and really owning it? Which leads us to the second difference. We see that the wise builder sets a foundation. It says he digs down deep to possess the strong foundation on the rock. Why? Because the rock doesn't move in a storm. It doesn't move from generation to generation. Rocks don't move. Dirt does. Right? You only have to be here on a rainy spring morning to know that half the parking lot's muddy. Right, with all the little child mud prints coming up and down the, the driveway. Ground moves, rock doesn't. And here we see, as we've read earlier together, as Matt read for us, that Jesus, that God, that his word, time and time again throughout Scripture, are the rock. Are they not? Um, this is First uh, Peter, which is what Matt read for us earlier. This is how the wise man builds the foundation. First Peter 2, starting in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen, precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word. Catch that line. They stumble, why? Because they disobey the word. Which leads us to that third difference. The wise person obeys. The foolish person disobeys. That's exactly what Jesus is putting his finger on, isn't he? Second Peter says, 
They stumble because they disobey. Jesus says, why do you presume to call me Lord and not do what I tell you? You see the correlation here. Now, if we look in verse 47, we see there's three actions that these builders do. You see it up here? Everyone who comes, hears, and does. That's the wise person. They come, they hear, and they do. The foolish person, which one do they do? They come, they're there in the presence of Jesus, aren't they? They're listening to Jesus. They hear his words. They got 67%. You know, that's passing from where I'm from. They're doing two of the three things, but Jesus is saying, no, you got to do all three. They come, they might even look, they might even sound, they might even be among, but they don't do. They're not proving it. They can come to church. The one difference we see here is the obedience. They can come, they can be around, they can even look like, but it's not the coming and it's not the hearing that defines a true disciple of Christ, does it? See, Jesus' statement here is just so chilling to us because he's accurately getting his thumb on one of the biggest issues we see in the church today. It's not that this text is primarily teaching that if you build your house on the rock of Christ, the storms of life won't knock you down. Although that is true, it's there's a difference between a true follower and someone who just says they are a follower. One of the biggest issues we see today in America, is it not? He's getting his, his thumb on the folks who have lip service, who talk the talk, which doesn't get you into heaven, by the way. Attending church doesn't get you to heaven. The proof of all of this is that you're obedient to the word of God. It's the proof that you are a follower of Christ. And so, as First Peter said, so the honor is for those of you who believe. You see here that discipleship, Jesus is tying discipleship with obedience. You can't have them separate. See, possessing faith in Jesus means you will obey. James chapter 2 further demonstrates it. Listen, listen to these words in James 2. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The point is that true biblical discipleship always leads to obedience. Do you claim to be a disciple of Christ? You will obey his commands. You can't have one without the other. I was thinking about it this week. Um, how many in this room drive across train tracks to get to church? It's just about everyone, unless you're coming from that end of 40. Right? For the longest time, I would drive over these train tracks up here and think, is there really a train? 
that goes across those tracks. And um, there, there is, right around noon to t- 2 o'clock or so, some days, if you're in the building, you can actually kind of feel it. But there really is a train. And before I saw the train, I would whew, just a little bit faster over that tri- those train tracks. But now, because I know that there's a train, and every time I go over, I'm just a little bit more careful. If you will, I obey the train because I know what it can do to me. And in the same way, if I'm a true believer of Jesus, I must obey what it is he commands. There's a bigger storm coming than the normal storms of life, and I think it's what Jesus is getting at here. It's that storm of death, and that final one of judgment, if you will, when each of our deeds, when our faith will be tested. And when describing that house built on the ground, Jesus says the ruin of that house was great. And then his sermon ends. And there's quiet. And the pictures, the scripture picks up and tells of another story. Can you just feel the weight of what they must have felt in that moment? The ruin of that house was great, period. I went to church, check. I signed up to volunteer for VBS. I read the daily bread. I even took communion. I've got a good, happy life, nice family. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, is saying, those things don't get you to heaven. Those things are the house that's built on the ground that will have a great ruin. All those things are good, but they don't do anything in and of themselves to get you there. It's what, why am I doing it? Why do I do those things? What's happening within me? Parents, I want to tread lightly here, but it's the truth. Just because our children say that they're believers, just because they prayed a prayer at one moment in time, does not mean that they are true believers. That's what Jesus is putting his finger on. The stats here are just staggering. And it's why I'm here for youth ministry. Two-thirds, nearly two-thirds, 64% of students leave the church. If you're a true believer, chances are you're not going to leave the church. The numbers here are just so staggering. That's statistics, according to Barna. Do not presume. It's so dangerous to presume our eternal state. Continue to pray for those loved ones until we see the fruit of their repentance. Following Christ, getting to heaven, is not about checking a box on a contact card or writing a date in the back of our Bible or praying a particular prayer after someone else. It's about something more. And the proof of that something more is in the obedience. You will know them by their fruit. In Sunday school this morning, we were talking about the Nigerian Christians who were just being killed left and right. And our um, 
um, being, they're saying, oh, well, you're killing yourself because you're saying hateful things. Being a Christian in Nigeria has some serious weight to it, doesn't it? If I know my life can be gone. You're not saying I'm a Christian unless you're really, really a Christian there. And how that ought to be for us in our hearts and in our minds, should it not? As we think, how on earth do I apply this? What on earth do I do with this? May I point to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. As we think about applying, let's just apply this passage to our lives. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul writes, examine yourselves. See that Jesus is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. And then deal with it. Which begs the question, how on earth do I examine yourself? to which I point to 1 John 2. Just listen to these words in 1 John. How do I examine myself? This is how. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so we see that, church, that we ought to examine ourselves. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do I love the things of the world? One way my mom said it growing up, and it hurts. Do I laugh at the things Jesus died for? Am I entertained by the things for which he hung on the cross? Would people at work or at school or at your play place, if you will, be surprised that they were to find out that you claim to be a Christian. The second part is a bit more uplifting, isn't it? It said, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Am I building my family? Are you building your family, your finances, your marriages on the word of God? Friends, that's what wholehearted discipleship, we're always beating this drum. That's what wholehearted discipleship is, isn't it? Lord, what does your scripture say about X? Do it. What does the Bible say about Y? Do it. He, whoever does the will of God, abides forever. So here's, um, here's a challenge, if you will. Maybe consider this week the whole book of 1 John focuses on this point of examining myself. Read the book of 1 John this week. It's actually shorter than the sermon is. It'll only take you about 10 minutes. The average reader will take 10 minutes to read the book of 1 John. Read it. Pray through it as 
and, and pray, Lord, will you open up my heart and my eyes to see what I ought to see? So consider reading that book of 1 John this week as, as we turn inward and say, Lord, how do I examine myself? No better way than to use the scripture. Now, all this talk about doing, is Jesus really saying that I can somehow obey my way into heaven? No. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying. More obedience does not get you to heaven. It's not somehow that I'll have a greater likelihood if I do more good than bad. It's not something I can do on my own. It's not something I can will into existence. Rather, rather just simply, I'll take you to Ephesians chapter 2. Many of you are familiar with it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Could it be any more clear that it's not something I can just will in and of myself? It couldn't be more clear. It's a gift from God himself, so that no one can boast. How many of us just sometimes I'm like, I'm just trying to be better. I'm trying to do better. I'm just trying. I'm trying. I'm trying so that maybe God will let me in. It's a free gift, is it not? It's not some sort of fear-based obedience to outweigh the good or the bad. It's an altogether different kind of obedience that we see here, isn't it? Um, it's an obedience that's an overflow of the heart, of the abundance of the heart. You know, husbands, I hope, you love your wives, not primarily because they can make your life miserable. But hopefully you'll love them out of the overflow of your heart. Right? That, um, you, the hand towel in the bathroom. Right? That you'll fold it just so. Right, the, uh, the placement of a certain lid in the powder room at various points in time. Right? Hopefully you don't do it because you have to, but because of you'll want to, out of the abundance of your love for your wife. Kids, hopefully you don't obey your, your moms today on Mother's Day just because they can ground you. But hopefully because you love them. It's an altogether different kind of obedience. It's one that wells up. It's a response to the affections. And it's a response of the affections. He who's been forgiven much, loves much, Jesus says, does he not? Which takes us right back to where we started with the good person, the good heart, the bad person, the bad heart, how on earth do I get a good heart if it's not something I can really do? If all the hearts are deceitful, if all the hearts are just desperately sick, what on earth can I do to make a heart good? You can't. You can't try harder. You can't do more. Right, as we read, it's a work of God so that how many people can boast? No one. See, we with our sinful hearts, we can't do anything. 
to change the state of our wicked hearts. It must be that supernatural work of God himself. I don't have these scriptures on the screen, but this is Ezekiel 36, 2 Corinthians 5, and Romans 6. Just listen with these scriptures together. God is speaking here in Ezekiel, he says, and I will give you a new heart, Israel, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see that the Lord offers us, each of us, a free gift. A gift of eternal life. A a better gift of a new heart. Consider church, Jesus' very first words in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 1.15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. To repent from our sin, to turn from our evil ways and to trust in Jesus. That's what he's saying. Repent of your evil ways. Trust and believe the good news of the Gospel. I hear time and time again the, the phrase, just say yes to Jesus. And that's a good thing. Yes, say yes to Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. But oftentimes, there's another side to saying yes to Jesus that we don't often talk about. Because when you say yes to him, you have to say no to a whole lot else, don't you? You can't say yes to Jesus and no to disobeying his word. You can't say yes to Jesus and no. I didn't say this backwards. You can't say yes to Jesus without saying no to sin. You can't say yes to Jesus and keep holding on to sin. The proof is in the obedience. The proof is in the ongoing repentance. You see it. You can't truly say yes to the Lord, unless you say no to the things that oppose him. You can't love that which he hates. And so I ask again, do we laugh at the things he died for? Are we entertained by the things for which he hung on the cross? If, first John, if anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so your heart will be changed if indeed you repent and believe the gospel that Jesus died on the cross and that he came back so that he can win a people to himself and give them a new heart in a new mind. And once that heart is transformed, you know what the proof is going to be now? The proof is going to be the obedience. 
It's not going to be this Lord, Lord, and not doing what he says. No, it's going to be Lord, Lord, and doing exactly what he says. The proof is in the obedience. Take note. As Matt read for us in 1 Peter, either Jesus will be the rock on whom your entire life is built, and because of whom you will weather every storm this life and the next, or he'll be the stumbling block that breaks us in more ways than we can ever dream. The evidence is not in the talking, but it's in the obedience of our lives on the rock or the stumbling block. So as we end, listen to these words. John 10.10. Jesus said it best. Excuse me, John 10.25. Jesus is speaking and he says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. This is the critical part here, church. Listen. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. True discipleship leads to obedience. Why? Because we love our shepherd. We want to do what our shepherd loves. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. So what's your shepherd asking you to do today? You see, it's a matter of, a, of the heart. A transformed heart. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. But for those who do not believe, they stumble because they disobey the word. There are only two camps. So as we, as we wrap up, as we read 1 John this week, ask the question, Lord, am I a professor of the faith? Or am I really a possessor of the faith? To possess it, and to build our lives, our whole lives, on the rock of Christ. Here in a moment, we're going to sing. Sing the old song that my hope is built on nothing less. As we do, think about it. Is my hope really built on the rock of Christ? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for being the rock that we can stand upon. Thank you for being the rock that doesn't move. And Lord, we ask that you will help each and every one of us understand whether we are a professor of the faith or whether we are truly a possessor of the faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, may we be a people who wholeheartedly run after you, who are serious about our relationship with you and how out of the abundance of our hearts just want to please you and obey you and your word in every manner that we can. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.